Hello, I'm Nam Fennell Malloy. With the season two finale approaching, I would like to invite you the opportunity to submit questions, comments, and suggestions for the season two after show, which will air on September 19th during the week of the podcast's one year anniversary. If interested, you can send an email to rediscoveredmovies at gmail.com or a voice message on anchor.fm slash rdmoviespod no later than September 15th. You can ask me anything from behind-the-scenes moments to the guest features on the podcast, or you could share your favorite moments from the podcast or film suggestions for future episodes. Just remember you have until September 15th to submit your questions by email or voice message on Anchor. America teaming up with Russia. That doesn't sound very friendly. The Man from UNCLE is up next on Rediscovered Movies. Hello, welcome to the season two finale of Rediscovered Movies. I'm your host, Nam Fanella Malloy. And before I start, I just want to say thank you guys for tuning into this season of the podcast. It is very appreciated. So thank you very much. So the film that will be closing the finale that I will be discussing is The Man from UNCLE. The Man from UNCLE is a 2015 spy film that is based on the 1964 TV series of the same name. The film is directed by Guy Ritchie, who's known for directing films such as Sherlock Holmes and Snatch. The film stars Henry Cavill, Army Hammer, and Alicia Vikander. So here's a plot. In the 1960s, with the Cold War in play, CIA agent Napoleon Solo, played by Henry Cavill, successfully helps Gabby Teller, played by Alicia Vikander, to defect West Germany. Sorry, let's just go back. So, Napoleon Solo, he successfully helps Gabby Teller uh, to defect to West Germany, despite the intimidating opposition of KGB agent Ilya Kuryakin, played by Army Hammer. Later, all three unexpectedly find themselves working together in a joint mission to stop a private criminal organization from using Gabby's father's scientific expertise to construct their own nuclear bomb. Through clenched teeth and stylish pose, all three must find a way to cooperate for the sake of world peace, even as they pursue their own agendas. The film was released in theaters back in August 14th, 2015, which opened at number three with 13.4 million. So films that beated this at the box office were Straight Outta Compton and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. It made over $107 million during its theatrical release. So about 45.4 million was domestic while 61.6 million was international. In terms of reception, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 68% critic score. Here's what they have to say with a consensus. The man from UNCLE tries to distract from an unremarkable story with charismatic stars and fizzy set pieces, adding up to an uneven action thriller with just enough style to overcome its lack of substance. The audience, however, gave it 73%. 
The film is available on VOD, so check your local provider. All right, first discoveries. So I believe when this uh, film was about to be released in theaters, I might have seen some trailers here and there, maybe in the theater or on TV. It didn't really interest me at the time because that was the same time Straight Outta Compton came out, so I was more interested in that. Uh, but I thought like it, it looked intriguing for a, a spy period piece. So I think like I saw reviews at the time were kind of mixed. So that was also a factor as in why I chose not to see it at the time. But many years later, I saw like reviews, people like recommending to see this movie. So last year I decided to finally rent it on the Cineplex store because I got a free voucher from Cineplex and I really enjoyed it. Does it elevate as a spy film? No, but it's certainly an entertaining one because it's very clear that the filmmakers, they wanted to pay homage to the spy films or films of the 1960s. And I say, like, I was pretty convinced by it for the most part. And it seems like yeah, everyone was having a great time. So I had a fun time as well, too. Let's go on to highlights. So going in with the 60s. So Clearly, like, it's a throwback to that era, like, through the score by Daniel Pemberton. Loved uh, the instruments, the various instruments that's used. And with the songs from artists from that uh, time period, including Nina Simone and Roberta Flagg, it was just a nice touch to it. So it's kind of like the cherry on top. And also, too, the costumes look exquisite like very expensive because with uh, gabby i loved uh, her outfits that she that she wears throughout the film i would say my favorite was the green and white dress that she wears when she meets uh, her uncle rudy at the racetrack and also to victoria like she has some nice outfits as well too i loved uh the what the the white and black one that she wears when she meets Napoleon Solo where she uh, drugs his drinks and I find yeah like the outfits are incredible it's like I wanna like I would love to wear any of those outfits but they're probably like tough to find so the costume designer I would say did an amazing job with that the lens flares it it has like um some lens flares particularly like with the the chase sequence um when napoleon is pursuing Ilya. like i loved um it kind of like uh yeah i guess that does a throwback to the 60s because like if you look at films during that period like like with the james bond movies from that uh period like it uses a lot of those techniques as well too. I would say along too with the, there's some graininess during the opening credits because um, it looks a bit washed out, look like they use a Polaroid camera. I don't know if that was the case or if, or if they use effects, but I would say I felt like I was watching 
a movie during that time period with the 60s even though like it has some modern techniques and with the director's signature trademarks i would say he they did a good job with paying respect to the 1960s and i love too with the noir type lighting going back to the chase sequence because it gives like a, a mystery feel like for both Napoleon and Ilya because <laughs> we don't know much about the characters except that Napoleon is part of CIA and Ilya is uh, with the KGB so we don't know like who's the good guy who's the bad guy well it's probably safe to assume that the KGB are the bad guys and CIA are the good guys but yeah like that was certainly entertaining to watch and yeah, like I said, clearly, like, they're influenced from the spy films of that uh, period, like, especially with the early Sean Connery Bond films. And going back to the opening and uh, credits and the closing credits to add, I loved the use of the red and black color scheme because, I don't know, I, it kind of puts you, like, into that mood, that adventurous mood. Uh, to sort of speak and adding like the yellow font kind of brings like a pulpy feel to it so yeah like because with those it uh, it it pretty much pays like I said respect to the 1960s and puts you like into that mood to make you as a viewer to go along for the ride to speak and one of my favorite, I would say, aspects of the film is the relationship between Napoleon and Ilya. Because clearly because they're working for different agencies, they do not get along. And once they are paired up together, <laughs> we see them bantering back and forth quite a lot because of their differences of opinion. Like, for instance, when Napoleon tells uh, Ilya and Gabby that there are henchmen following them, he uh Ilya pretty much says that he already knows and all that stuff and um he says he'll handle it accordingly <laughs> but Napoleon urges him to act scared because with his cover as an architect he would not know how to fight and <laughs> it seems like Ilya doesn't want to like take that uh feedback but he has no choice at the end of the day because he'll blow the cover and blow the mission. So, and also too, there was another moment when Solo, he criticizes Ilya's uh, bow tie. <laughs> it's a weird bow tie. I don't know why he would wear it. <laughs> he pretty much urges him to wear like a necktie instead. And of course he doesn't listen. And then it's so funny that cutting to the next scene, he wears that necktie. <laughs> And also, too, they bug each other's rooms with their uh, devices, which is hilarious because clearly, like I said, they don't trust each other. But it's nice, though, like as the film progresses, they they respect each other and in ways they develop a friendship, like especially when it comes to Ilya's watch that he wears that he got from his father when that was stolen by the muggers. Solo was able to retrieve it from a henchman and gives it to him towards uh, the film when 
it seems like they were about to kill each other over the disc, but... But, yeah, like, in ways, though, like, this movie is, like, a spy, like, buddy cop movie. Even though, like, we have Gabby, like, as a main character as well, it's really about the relationship between Solo and Kuryakin at the end of the day. And I also like to, with Napoleon Solo, his character, he's a flirt. <laughs> he is a womanizer. Because look with the, when he first meets Victoria. He does the whole tablecloth trick by pulling the, the cloth without um, uh, moving the uh, items on the table. Which I'd have to say kudos to Henry Cavill for that because... I wouldn't be able to pull that off personally, but I imagine that took lots of practice. And I wondered, did um, they had to do multiple takes if he kept messing up or if the lighting or what, whatever wasn't right. But I'd say kudos to Henry Cavill. And it shows that he has gentle hands, who I believe Ilya said that, or it might have been Victoria, I don't remember. But <laughs> he, but yeah, like he's very quick with his hands because his character is essentially a thief or a con artist. If you remember during that whole uh, montage when the KGB tells Ilya info on Napoleon Solo, and also too he sleeps with the hotel clerk, <laughs> and it's hilarious. He says, "Oh, stay for five minutes," and she's like, "Oh, I know your five minute minutes, Mister Solo." <laughs> So I thought, yeah, that was quite hilarious. And in ways, though, this is really like Henry Cavill's uh, James Bond film. So in a way, you could say it's his audition to be Bond because since like 2000, in the early 2000s, before Daniel Craig was cast, he's always been in consideration to play James Bond. Now, I don't think he'll be cast as James Bond. I, that's mainly because of age and all that stuff. Be because they tend to, they want to cast younger actors to do multiple films. Again, that's just my opinion, how I see it. But if he were to be cast in that franchise, like he'd be great as either as an agent that works alongside Bond, or he could be a great Bond villain. So, hey, if any of the Bond producers are listening here, like cast Henry Cavill as a villain or as a fellow agent. And Kuryakin, so Ilya, he often gets triggered in this movie. In when he gets to that space, he reminds me like of that moment in the TV show Arthur when Arthur is getting visibly upset at DW for being annoying <laughs> because you see the shot of uh, him clenching his fist like he wants to beat her up. That, <laughs> that That's what kind of like came into my mind when Ilya like wants to like beat up someone because he gets triggered. Because we first see that when uh what was it that scene when um napoleon and Ilya are together where napoleon brings up his fam his uh with Ilya's uh his backstory with his uh, parents i think his father like 
gets to prison while his mother is a, a sex worker, something along those lines. <laughs> and <laughs> clearly, like, if someone, like, uh, pushes him to the edge, like, <laughs> it's funny. We see, like, the hands trembling and that cold stare, like, the Paddington cold stare. <laughs> it's funny. And there was, like, a moment too in that same scene he flips the table <laughs> pretty much to express his rage but notice he can't beat up napoleon because they have to work together for the sake of the mission because with him flipping the table reminds me of uh the moment when Teresa from the housewives of new jersey flips the table that infamous uh, moment so in ways that he he pulled a Teresa a good ice moment, Judice moment. So that <laughs> was hilarious. And also to towards the end when his boss tells him to threatens him to get the disc and kill Napoleon if necessary, <laughs> he destroys that hotel room. And yeah, like clearly he gets upset fairly quickly like he in ways he has like a an anger management problem but at least he can he keeps his cool unless if you know he's by himself at the hotel room but yeah and with gabby and kuryakin they kind of have this will they or won't they like become a couple because it's always like hinted it looks like it's going in that direction but it doesn't go quite there because when we see them together in the hotel room she's drunk while dancing she falls on top of him robotly and then falls asleep because it looked like he wanted to kiss her because they're that close <laughs> and, but that uh, doesn't happen and also too when they're together at the hotel room it looked like they're about to embrace but doesn't happen <laughs> because she has to go meet Waverly at his uh, space but yeah like because it seems like at the beginning they did not get along because like I said difference of opinion but who knows like there could be something there because i wouldn't be surprised if after their mission in istanbul they become a couple but but yeah clearly like that's most likely not gonna happen because of them you know being like the opposites uh so to speak the cast, like, I feel like everyone did a good job with their performances because it's interesting that most of the actors, they don't even use their natural accents. So, yeah, because if like um, I hadn't seen any of them before, I probably would have bought like those accents more. I would have thought like that's how they speak, but yeah like it does it does wonders and i, I want to point out with elizabeth debicki she plays victoria she's uh, the main villain because she does a phenomenal job as a villain and if this movie kind of convinces me that she should 
be cast in a Bond film either as the villain or as an uh, ally, so to speak. Because, yeah, like she looks charismatic on screen, even with all of her uh, previous roles, like with The Great Gatsby and Widows, like she always brings it every time when she is on screen. And I would say too, like for my favorite sequence in the film was that chase sequence because I loved how like it has a bit of mystery to it because we we don't know like um, who's uh, like whose whose side like the audience is on like it's safe to assume that like with Henry Cavill with the CA they're the good guys but like we don't fully know like who those characters are and it's hilarious so that with Ilya he's pretty much like the Terminator because <laughs> he keeps going going even though there's obstacles thrown towards him so and he rips like a piece of the car that Gabby and Solo are in so I just wonder like is his character bionic <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that were the case, but but yeah, he keeps going and going, and especially too, like when he's going after Alexander, like on the motorcycle, he throws that motorcycle towards Alexander, which I imagine is very, very heavy, but he pulls it off, so again, he could be bionic, but we don't know. And let's go on to the low light section. So the style. So like for those like uh, are familiar with Guy Ritchie's work, like he he has a a unique style to it. And I saw like with some of the reviews, like they noted that the style like overpowers the substance. So it's pretty much style over substance. And for me, like, I didn't mind the style to a degree because I felt like, does every twist have to be shown through flashbacks to know what actually went down? Because I felt like that wasn't necessary at the end of the day. But like, for instance, when when Napoleon steals um, the invitation from Waverly, we see like uh, through a reveal, that that Waverly didn't mind it because he was smiling and we see like a flashbacks of Napoleon like stealing the the jewelry from Victoria and from the countess so but yeah like even though like it's it's nice but for me it just wasn't necessarily and if montages like they were used I guess to speed up the film Again, like, I didn't feel like the length, like I, I wasn't bored while watching the movie, like it's very fast paced, which is nice, but it seems as though like they use the montages to like get to the point of the film, which for me, it didn't work because especially when Solo and Kuryakin are, are, are heading to the uh, compound that's owned by Alexander and Victoria, he pretty much shows us a lot of flashy cuts 
of them with the uh, soldiers infiltrating the place without actually fu fully showing the action. So for me, I just wish they showed more of the action because I don't know if that was a director's choice or if it was a studio's choice. It could be either or, or maybe both. I don't know, but for me, yeah, that was a low light. Another low light. So let's go back to the watch. So clearly this watch has a significance for Kuryakin. But why does he wear it while undercover? I mean, Spy 101, do not bring your personal belongings to a mission. You don't see J James Bond bringing any personal of his nor does Jason Bourne so why does he do it like it doesn't make sense I get that it has significance to him because it was his father's watch but at the same time you don't bring that stuff with you because it might get stolen which actually did by the muggers which I have to say they are one of the nicest or probably the nicest muggers I've ever seen before on screen and I was not convinced by that because they're usually not nice when it when they want to get what they want. But at the end of the day, it was on Ilya for that watch to be stolen. Because he could have just stored it at the hotel or left it at his place. Either way, he should not have brought it with him on the mission. That's like, like I said, Spy 101. Do not bring your personal stuff to the mission. So also too, so this is uh, when Solo and Kuryakin, they are being pursued by the bad guys on the boat. So we see Solo, he falls out of the water and he swims to shore, he gets into this truck. So he, ha he decides to have a meal that he found inside the truck. So I wondered, is that food sanitary? Is it fresh? But clearly, he's enjoying it. I mean, personally, myself, I would not, I would not eat it because you don't know where that has been, how long it hasn't been there. But <laughs> like, I get when you're on the go, like, you know, you need to eat and all that stuff. But still, I, no, I wouldn't touch that because again, it could be poisoned. You don't know or infected. <laughs> But it seemed clear that that was put for com comedic relief to show that Solo is, you know, taking his time while Kuryakin is trying to evade the bad guys on the boat. So also to another low light. So after when they escape from that chase sequence, we see Victoria calls Solo's hotel room. And then once he doesn't pick up, she had straight there with henchmen. So I'm just wondering, why does she go there? Does she suspect he's not who he says he is? Because we, before, she seems to be impressed by Solo when, you know, he did the tablecloth trick and uh, stealing the jewelry from her and the Countess. But, yeah, I just feel like in ways it was plot convenience. <laughs> Pretty much to raise her suspicions that Solo is an agent, but yeah, that just 
did not work for me. And so I would say for me, one of the plot twists that I had an issue with was that Gabby decides to reveal Solo and Kuryakin to the bad guys. Why? So she could get to her father? That does not make sense because it's safe to assume that with Victoria and Alexander, they have their suspicions of them being agents because, you know, with Solo being missing from his room and with um, Kuryakin with that incident with him beating up the, the, the boys like at the washroom. So I felt that wasn't necessary. But then it was also revealed that, oh, she is an agent for Waverly who told her to sell those guys out to the bad guys. So I'm like, no, 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 no. And also know that Gabby is an agent under Waverly who works for MI6. I'm like, what? Because honestly, like she'd be better off if she was an informant where like she was recruited, you know, by Waverly, you know, to infiltrate Alexander Victoria or whatever. But with her being an actual agent, I don't really buy that because she allows herself to get captured <laughs> and depends on Solo and Ilya to rescue her. So I don't know, as an agent, I don't know if she could um, handle herself, but whatever. And also, too, um, I wasn't surprised that with Rudy, that he was like a Nazi criminal, like a crazy person, because, I mean, with the, the choice with the actor, because he was, uh, he played the director, I believe, for the fictional film In Inglorious uh, Bastards. So, because <laughs> you see at times, like, if, a certain actor, let's say, gets cast like as a bad guy, like for example, let's just say Guy Pierce with uh, Without Remorse. It was no surprise at the end that he turned out to be the bad guy in the film. <laughs> so here, like with that actor being cast as a bad guy, I was not surprised by that. And also too. The CIA and KGB, they tell Solo and Kriakin to like kill each other at the end, which does not happen. But then Waverly tells them that their bosses decide to give them to Waverly. So I'm just like, what? So what about the disc? So, so I guess Waverly gets solo and kriakin and the disc i'm just like that just does not make sense and i wonder too like because um waverly gives them the code name uncle at the end and when i did a bit of research uncle is supposed to be an independent organization so i'm just wondering is that a part of mi6 because we don't see like waverly leaving his job for MI6 to start his own thing. So I'm just wondering, is that an offshoot of MI6? I don't know. And the last low light that I have, so the song You Work For Me by Laura Avula, 
is not included in both the film and the soundtrack even though that song was created specifically for the film and was used in promos so i'm just wondering why was not in the film at the end of the day it's not even in the closing credits which does not make sense i'm just wondering was it a copyright reason but i don't think that would make sense was that uh, a director's choice or a studio's choice again i don't know that just does not make sense or was that song made specifically for the trailers of the movie because again that doesn't make sense either I could not find research on that, but if anyone knows, let me know on social media at rdmoviespod. Let's go on to trivia. So there's a lot of fun facts about this film. I'm not going to read all. So a notable one was that the they decided, the filmmakers, they wanted to have the film take place during the 60s to allow it to have its own world and its own tone and all that sorts of deal to set set itself apart from like the Bourne films or like with James Bond or any recent spy films that takes place during the present. So yeah, I I commend that choice because clearly it did though because because I also saw that this movie is supposed to serve as a prequel to the series. So I'm just wondering, like, if it wasn't for them to setting itself apart, like, was it intended to be connected to the series? Again, I don't know, but whatever. So Guy Ritchie, he apparently looked at films such as Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid for inspiration trying to create a juxtaposition, juxtaposition, I, sorry, tongue twister, between humor and seriousness and attempting to cross genres to a degree. I'm like, okay, because I have not seen that film. I hear it's great, but okay. So the only actors that used their accents, their natural accents in the film were Hugh Grant, Sylvester Groth, who played uh, Uncle Rudy, and Luca Calvani, who played Alexander. So, like I said, if I hadn't seen any of those actors before, I would have certainly bought that they were actually those ethnicities. But, yeah, like like I said, they did a good job with that. And for a long time, this movie has been through development hell because at different stages, they've had different directors, or actors attached to it. So most notably, Steven Soderbergh, he was attached as director and George Clooney was cast as Napoleon Solo. So Clooney, he dropped out of the film back in 2011 because of health problems he had at the time. And then Soderbergh dropped out three months later. Interesting. And there are a lot of actors, I guess, in consideration for Napoleon, which included Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ryan Gosling, Robert Pattinson, Matt Damon, Christian Bale, Chris Pine, John Hamm, and Tom Cruise, who was cast as Napoleon Solo, but dropped out to do Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Interesting. But then eventually Henry Cavill was cast, who was who apparently auditioned for the role of Ilya Kuryakin. So 
luckily for Henry Calvi, he did get cast not in as Ilya, but as Napoleon Solo. And for the role of Ilya, Joel Edgerton, he auditioned for that role, but didn't get it because Army Hammer was cast in the role instead. So interesting. And for Gabby, before Alicia Vikander was cast, actresses that were in consideration or auditioned included Gemma Arterton, Alice Eve, Emilia Clark, and Felicity Jones. So interesting. And with uh, Napoleon's uh, the tablecloth trick, Henry Calville actually did that uh, himself because it was not a visual effect. I never suspected it was anyways. And he was trained of that trick by British variety star, Matt Ricardo. So like I said, kudos to Henry Cavill for that trick. And lastly, the they wanted to use practical effects as much as possible. So special effects supervisor Dominic Toy Toy offered an an example. The striving the stunt driving positions we built onto the cars were framed out as they would have done pre-CG. So the camera captures what the audience will see in frame rather than filming the whole rig and having CG painted out later. And additionally, real equipment salvage from the 60s was used on some sets and set pieces. So yeah, like kudos to that because it's nice, especially these days, to see like an action film that actually uses practical effects than shooting in front of a green screen. So kudos to the film. All right, lastly, this important question. Should this movie be rediscovered? And I say yes, it does, because it's an entertaining spy film that pays homage to the 60s. And it's full of suspense and it's also full of humor, so you get the best of both worlds. Like I said, this does not elevate the spy genre, but it's certainly a great addition to the spy genre by setting itself apart, mainly because of the time setting. The performances from the cast, I enjoyed the technical aspects I really liked for the most part, and I'd say the music is solid. So please check out this movie if you haven't seen it already. So that concludes this episode of the podcast. So you could follow myself on Twitter and Instagram at Numfi Malloy. You could follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at rdmoviespod, and you can use the hashtag rdmoviespod. You can answer the question on Spotify. You could like, share, and subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform that is available. And since this is the season two finale, the next episode will be the season two after show. And I would love for you guys to submit questions or comments or suggestions for future titles for the podcast. So if you'd like to do so, you could email rediscoveredmovies at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message on anchor.fm slash rdmoviespod. And if you're, please do that by September 15th. If you are listening to this after that date, no worries, you could still 
submit those by email or voice message. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast and also for tuning in to this season of the podcast. And until next time.